Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. So tonight, um, our one-off message is going to be called, as uh, entitled, Longing for Christ. You guys should have notes on your seat. If not, just wave at somebody and we'll, we'll run them to you. Um, but we're going to start in Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 48. This is the story of the woman with the issue of blood. And we'll talk about that after we get through this quick passage. Um, so Luke chapter 8, 40 through 48. On the other side of the lake, the crowds welcomed Jesus because they had been waiting for him. Then a man named Jairus, a leader of the local synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come home with him. His only daughter, who was about 12 years old, was dying, and Jesus went with him. He was surrounded by the crowds. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant constant bleeding, and she could find no cure. Coming up behind Jesus, she touched the fringe of his robe. Immediately, the bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked. Everyone denied it, and Peter said, Master, this whole crowd is pressing up against you. But Jesus said, Someone deliberately touched me, for I felt healing power go out from me. When the woman realized that she could not stay hidden, she began to tremble and fell to her knees in front of him. The whole crowd heard her explain why she had touched him, and that she had been immediately healed. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now tonight's, um, typically when you come to a uh, community church service, there is, I'm a, uh, if this is the preaching side and this is the teaching side and there was a scale, I kind of lean more a little bit to the, to the, to the teaching side. And tonight um, I, I'm going to try to blend those a little bit because I feel like uh, there's something very specific Lord has kind of asked me to deliver to his people. It happens every week, but it's a, it'll be a little bit different for what we normally do here every week. Um, and when, when, I, when I was reading this week about the, the, this woman with the issue of blood, um, I, I, I kind of I did a little digging into it and found some very interesting things. And we're actually going to read another passage about it here in just a second. But this issue of blood was that the woman had for 12 years she would she started bleeding one day and it didn't stop it didn't stop 12 years goes by and she has um no ability to participate in certain things in their culture and here's why according to the law of moses a woman who was bleeding had to stay quarantined all of us understand that word, right? Um, all of us had to stay, they, they had to say quarantined until the bleeding stopped, add seven days. Then she could come and participate in the ceremonies of the temple. So when we hear that this is, there's an issue of blood, it's bad enough when we think, oh my goodness, this has been going on for 12 years. Oh my goodness, what has this been like for her? What is her physical condition like because she has been suffering with this ailment for so long? But she couldn't participate in, in, in a lot of the cultural activities, including worship, because, first line of your notes, women with her physical condition were considered ceremonially unclean. 
Now, I'm not going to dig too deep into this because it gets down into the weeds, but just let me quickly explain that there's a difference between someone who is quote-unquote unclean and, and, and someone who is ceremonial unclean. Someone who's unclean, they have to go sacrifice, they have, to, they have to, to make amends for their wrongdoing, they have to go to the temple, there has to be blood spilled for them, a priest has to uh, oversee their entire, um, their, their entire endeavor, their entire sacrifice. But when you're ceremonial unclean, uh, uh, unclean, it means that you just can't participate in certain activities until you go through the cleansing ritual. They had a way that you had to wash and clean and, and certain types of uh, you know, uh, basins that you had, you, you had to use and, certain, and so forth. So this woman was ceremonially unclean because of her physical condition. Those who were, uh, next on your notes, it would have been very difficult, if not impossible, for this woman to participate in worship. Marriage or any type of community. It would have been difficult for her to participate in worship, marriage, or any type of community. The reason for that is not only is she supposed to be isolated in this condition, not only is she supposed to be quarantined, anything or anyone she touches is also considered ceremonial and unclean. So if you had to go through, jump through all the hoops, to, 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 to wash yourself in a certain way and use certain trays and certain basins and go through a certain regiment to be quote-unquote clean just so you could come to the temple, just in our context, so you could come to the church. And then somebody who is ceremonial unclean walks by you and bumps into you. You're like, I got to start the whole process over. So what, what would happen? People were trying to go get involved in the temple. Did they want to be next to her? Uh-uh. Do they want to, you couldn't, you couldn't touch certain things, sit on certain seats that were the same because you would then become ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. So this woman had to remain in some type of isolation, away from people or at a distance so that she could communicate with them and not defile them with what was going on in her. It's far more than the physical condition that is bad enough. It's far worse than that because now she can't participate in worship, marriage, or community. This woman walks into a crowd of people when Jesus is on his way to Jairus' house to touch his daughter, to heal his daughter, his only daughter, and she pushes through the crowd with the intention of touching Jesus. She had every bit of understanding what this meant. She was risking putting her condition on him if the healing didn't work. She was risking putting her uncleanness transferring that to him she knew exactly what she was doing she knew exactly the risk she was taking and she had been through enough where she said i'm going to get him now 
He's here. I've heard the stories. She lived in an area where the where word had spread about what Jesus is doing and healing. And she pushed through all of that and said, I'm going to risk putting my issue, uh, my uncleansed condition on him. But I think if he's the real deal, something's going to be different. She touches his garment. The hem of it, that, that word hem is translated into like a tassel that's, that was put at the bottom of all of these garments that they would wear. She touched this hem, this tassel, and she's immediately cleaned. And there's something I notice about Jesus in the middle of all this. He's a Jew. He grew up in the nation of Israel. He understands all this ceremonially unclean. He understands how to, to get clean. He understands all of the things surrounding this. And next on your notes, Jesus is not bothered by our issues. He's not inconvenienced by our issues. And he has the time to address our issue. How do we know this? We see this reflected in this story when the woman, after she touches him, he stops going where he is going. He stops. Stops going to go heal someone else and said, who was it that touched me in this way? There were all kinds of people touching him. But one touched him deliberately. It was a deliberate effort to connect to the master. Now I want to read. There's another account of this in in the book of Mark, and he says a couple of little details that we don't have in the first reading in Luke. So let's read that right now. Mark, Mark 5, 21 through 33. Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. When a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived, uh, when, when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him, my little daughter is dying, he said, please come and lay your hands on her, heal her so she can live. Jesus went with him, and all the people followed, crowding around him. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with a constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors, and over the years, she had spent everything she had to pay them, but she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. She'd heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd, touched his robe, for she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. Immediately the bleeding stopped, and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of a terrible condition. Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out from him, so he turned around to the crowd and asked, Who touched my robe? His disciples said to him, Look at this crowd pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell on her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. Mark adds a detail in here that it's very important to understand. She had been to many doctors, many of them. 
and she had spent all she had trying to pursue their remedies. And not only did it not help, it made it worse. So I started to think to myself, what kind of things did they tell her to do? So there's um, another book that, that deals with Jewish history. It's very central to the, the, the Jewish community, and it's called the Talmud. Now, it's not Scripture. It's not, um, it's not inspired. It's not on the same level as Scripture as any, in, in any regard. However, it gives us some insight to some things that they did culturally and what some of the treatments they gave to people who were sick were. So they have 11 things, 11 treatments that can be given to a woman with her condition. I'm not going to read you all 11, but I'm going to read you uh, probably six or seven of these. And this is comical, to say the least. The treatments that they told this woman that the doctors in, the, in that day said, I'm, I want you to do this, X, Y, and Z. Listen to what they told her, the doctors told her, to, 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 to um, solve her condition. Okay? Um, take spices, uh, gum of Alexandria, alum, and crocus hortensis, and of a certain weight each. Let them be bruised together or crushed and given in wine to the woman that has the issue of blood. So they took all of these spices that were around from these other nations, they crushed them up, they put them in the wine to try to dissolve them up, and then they're like, hey, take a shot of that. You think NyQuil tastes bad. This was nasty. But what does she do? Guns it. If this doesn't work, take nine large logs of Persian onions. Boil them in the wine. Give it to her to drink and tell her, arise from thy flux or, they condi or your condition. Now look, sidebar. I'm married into the Polynesian culture. It is one of the most wonderful cultures I've ever known in my life. I grew up in Florida. There was, you know, there was like rednecks and Puerto Ricans and black folks, and that was all I knew. And so when I came out here to Arizona, I was like, there's Puerto Ricans out here. And I almost got in a whole lot of trouble because they're like, these are Polynesians. I was like, what is that? You know, so I got to introduce to the culture, and I got seeped in the culture. We've been married for more than 20 years, so I understand. And uh, before her mom passed, she lived with us. Or my, my wife's mom passed. She lived with us, and she would make this dish. And it was coconut milk, onions, and fish boiled all together. Now, half of you in this room look at me and go, that's nasty. And I would agree. And the rest of you would be like, where is that on community night? Let me see that. Let me have that dish. I'm looking at this and going, that's far worse. Persian onions, nine of them bad boys boiled in wine and say drink. And then while she drinks it, say arise from thy condition. And if that doesn't work, <laughs> this is awesome. 
Set her in a place where two ways meet, like a little crossroads. And let her hold the cup of wine. They're trying to liquor these poor women up. This just wine, wine, wine. Take a little bit more wine, sip some wine, put some stuff in the wine and take it, right? Let her hold a cup of wine in her hand. And let somebody come behind her and affright her. So somebody walks up behind her and goes, ha! And she's supposed to go, oh, oh, I'm cured. I don't bleed anymore. I'm not kidding. This is in the Talmud, what you're supposed to be doing. And uh, then tell her, arise from thy flux. Get up from your condition. If that doesn't work, take a handful of, uh, of cumin and a handful of crocus and a handful of fenugreek. Let them be boiled and give her to drink. Say, so cut the wine out at least and just give her straight herbs. Nothing. If that doesn't work, this is hilarious. Dig seven trenches, trenches, like holes in the ground. Burn in them some cuttings of vines not yet circumcised, which means a vine that's less than four years old, and let her take in her hand a cup of wine. There's the wine again. And let her be led from trench to trench and let her, and, and let her lean over that, stepping over it. Let her be um, to go to everyone in sequence. And in each time she goes over one of the trenches, tell her, arise from thy issue. So I don't know if they thought the heat or the smoke or the fumes from the vines were somehow just going to be like absorbed in her body and then all be done. If that doesn't work, I got two more of these. This is great. This is just the most insane one to me. Carry the ashes of an ostrich egg in a linen bag in the summer and transfer them to a cotton bag in the winter. And if that one if that isn't bad enough, um, carry around on your person a piece of barley corn. Look, I'm just going to read it. And if it ruins your appetite, it ain't my fault. A piece of barley corn that can be found in the dung of a white female donkey. <clears throat> find that, first of all, finding it's bad enough. Then keep it on your person. Let me just put this in my pocket and walk around with it for a little while. Ladies, throw that in your purse. You're like, I will never use this purse again. Again, this is not scripture. This is, this is what they culturally would do for people during that time for this condition. Next line in your notes. With our modern medical achievements and knowledge, we can see the ancient cultural treatments are ridiculous. They're ridiculous. Now, this is a little unfair because we have thousands of years of medical advancements and knowledge and technology that help us to understand what these conditions were. But as much as we kind of joke and laugh and say these are ridiculous, they were absolutely serious at the time. Somewhere down the line, somebody said, try this. Somebody in the line, you know, it, it's not like rub Vicks on your chest and then go under a blanket with a humidifier like my grandma told me to do when I had a cold. You kind of get that one a little bit. It'll open you up a little bit. Hopefully, it'll help you breathe a little bit more, right? We still do that today. But somewhere, someone came up with these ideas, and it's a little unfair for us to look back over thousands of years and go, uh, your tactics are dumb. 
because we, we sit on the, med- on, the, on the shoulders of the medical advancements that have happened in our time. But nevertheless, they are, based upon what we know now, ridiculous. Next line. Equally ridiculous is the modern man trying to create a step-by-step instruction for getting what we want from God instead of relying on the perfect answer to every question, Jesus. As much as we sit here and chuckle and laugh and take a piece of barley corn out of the excrement of a female white donkey and put it in our pocket and step over trenches of vines that are burning, we look at this and go, this is just ridiculous. The exact same thing should be said when we try to put systems together to get what I want from God. This woman went through all of the systemic steps. Add insult to injury, she just didn't do all these embarrassing treatments. She had to pay to have them done. So now she's worse than she was before. A dozen years, think 30 to 42 A dozen years of this condition, and now she's flat broke. She has done all of the self-prescribed things that have been put in front of her by the quote-unquote experts, by the doctors of her time, and none of it works. She has absolutely nothing left, and a level of desperation rises in her. A longing in her to have this solved takes over her emotions. It goes past what she knows she's supposed to do in the culture. And she pushes through and connects to Jesus. Notice what Jesus did not say to her. She did not, he did not say, my daughter, good job following the 10 steps to gaining your healing. He did not say, well, you tried everything you were supposed to do. He did not say you followed all the rules and now we're good to go on with that healing that you wanted because you checked all the boxes off. He said, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. Every single one of us, me included, and at the head of the line, had a condition that we could not solve ourselves, And it took us connecting to and having faith in Christ for that condition to be solved. And that, my friends, is the nasty, disgusting, sinful flesh that disqualified us from heaven. Every single one of us has had an issue we cannot treat on our own. But what did we do? 
tried a whole bunch of ridiculous stuff. Self-help books. Drinking. Any other substance? Relationships? Sex? Um, pulling myself up by my brute straps? Relying on me because I have everything I need? Saying affirmations? over and over again that I am enough and I am good and I'm all these different things. We did all of that and none of it saved us. And you may not have checked off all the boxes on all that stuff in your list, but some of it applies to you, I guarantee. Because some of it applies to me. But there was a longing in this woman to have the issue resolved. And the longing for Jesus overtook her. She threw out all the rules. She threw out all the cultural stuff she's supposed to do. And she goes, I'm going to him. Because he's the one that can solve the issue. She had faith in Christ, but she also had a longing and desire to lay everything on the line to get to him. You remember what that was like for you? If you're a believer and a follower of Jesus in this room? Remember what that was like? Do you remember the guilt of your sin when you realized, I have no way. I have no hope. I am not being sent to hell. I was born in a condition that would automatically qualify me to be away from Jesus. But at the moment we realized it, that the light came on, where everything lined up and we said, wait, I'm destined for eternity without him in hell. But he's stepping in here and going, hey, I got a way to get you out. You remember that moment? Remember that moment when we said, I can't pay for this. I can't do anything. All I got to do is take it as a free gift to me, a grace. I don't deserve it. I couldn't earn it. And he still died for me, knowing I could not repay him. It's of no benefit to him. It is only a benefit to me. Remember that longing you had at that moment for him? Remember what that was like? When you realized Jesus was the only thing that could fix it. Believers, we walk through life and we tend to forget that moment. And if you're not one of those people who's ever forgotten that moment or pushed it off to the side and hadn't thought about it in a long time, I need to shake your hand after this service is done because I, I, I just admire you a lot. 
But you walk through life long enough, you're going to have something that ails you. A heart condition. A loss. A disappointment. Some anger. A wound of some type. And I want to read another passage that describes this real quick. 2 Corinthians 4, 8-13. This is Paul talking about us as believers dealing with these conditions. We are pressed on every side by troubles but we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Yes, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. So we live in the face of death, but this has resulted in the eternal life for you. But we continue to preach because we have the same kind of faith the psalmist had when he said, I believed in God, so I spoke. If you have not taken a moment to reflect on and remember the longing that was in your heart at the moment when you initially found Jesus, you're going to be tempted to look at this scripture in a certain way. And I put it in your notes and I underlined the I underlined these words because this is it's easy for us to focus on these words in this passage, okay? We're pressed on every side by troubles, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but not given to despair. We're hunted down. We're knocked down, suffering. If we're not careful, we can focus on all of that part of the passage. But I encourage you to look to the end of those sentences and not just see that we're pressed, but see the promise that we are not crushed. We're not driven to despair. We're never abandoned by God. We are not destroyed. The life of Jesus will be seen in our bodies. This has resulted in eternal life. Continu we continue to preach because we have the same kind of faith the psalmist had when he said, I believed in God, so I spoke. Both are a reality. The suffering condition is a reality, but so is the reality that even though we are pressed, we are not crushed. Though we are perplexed, we're not driven to despair. Though we are hunted down, we are not destroyed. Now this passage is talking about the physical condition of these people. He is warning them. He is telling them, myself, along with all of these apostles, are physically being hunted down. We're being, we're, we're, we're being hunted we're being knocked down. We are physically suffering. In some instances, we are being imprisoned. We are dealing with all of these things, but we are not crushed. In this country, at this point, 99.9% .9 chance you are not dealing with that physical persecution yet. Hopefully it doesn't come, ever. But historically, the church of Jesus Christ eventually faces it everywhere. 
that struggle that you experience now from an emotional, a spiritual level, there is a parallel here. That struggle, that perplexed what is going on. Why has not God solved this issue? Why has he, has he allowed this to happen? Why have I carried around this condition for a dozen years? All of those things are true, but in the midst of that, you are not abandoned. You are not forgotten. You are not destroyed. You are still waking up. You are still living. You are still moving. You are still chasing the God and following him, the God that saved you that you had that moment with at the beginning. So my question is, if you've experienced some of these burdens, these issues, the question that I feel prompted the entire time of my study to bring to not you but to us all of us as followers of Christ when's the last time that longing for Jesus overran my current issue when's the last time my heart longed for him in a way that says, I'm carrying all these weights. I'm going to leave these right here at your feet. And I'm just going to run for you. When's the last time our heart longed for God like that? Matt, are you talking about an emotional thing or I need to cry right now? No. I'm talking about the strongest desire in your heart and life right now is I'm going to push through all of the things I got to deal with. I'm going to lay all these issues down. I don't care what the rules say that I'm supposed to do. I am going to meet my master. When's the last time we did that? When's the last time, like the men who walked on the road to Emmaus, did we say, does my heart not burn within me when Jesus is near? When's the last time that longing for Christ overran my, I really need help right now. I'm not belittling any help that we need from God. What I'm saying is, is my desire for him still greater than my need for him to move. My need for him to solve my problem. My need for him to, 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 to answer the prayer that I've been praying, to help me shoulder the burden of the weight that I've been carrying for so long. When has my longing for him been greater than that? When has the longing of my heart been like Psalm 84 too? I long, yes, I faint with longing to enter the courts of the Lord. With my whole being, body, and soul, I will shout joyfully to the living God. Psalm 42, 1 and 2. As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I go and stand before him? When's the last time Psalm 63 
was true for me. Oh God, you're my God and I long for you. My whole being desires you like a dry, worn out, waterless land. My soul is thirsty for you. Let me see you in the sanctuary. Let me see how many, how mighty and glorious you are. Your constant love is better than life itself and so I will praise you. I will give you thanks as long as I live. I will raise my hands to you in prayer. My soul will feast and be satisfied and I will sing songs of praise to you. As I lie in bed, I remember you all night long. I think of you because you have always been my help. In the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. I cling to you, and your hand keeps me safe. Long before I ever asked you the question, I had to sit in a truck by myself. And look at my life and the things that dominate my prayer, the things I beg God for, because I still beg him for stuff. And it's not stuff, it's resolution. I had to ask myself the question, when has my own heart, as a guy who's walked with the Lord most of his life, who's a pastor of a church, when is the last time my heart was so overrun with the longing for Jesus that the condition of my environment no longer mattered? I'm going to ask you guys to play that real quick. Just real lightly can. I sat in my truck. And after the volunteer night, I sat in this room. I didn't want to run from the question. I didn't want to run from the question. I wanted to listen to these words and say, so where I'm at right now, reflective of these words, turn it up if you can. The words are, I love you, Lord. And I lift my voice. to worship you oh my soul rejoice take joy my king in what you hear let it be a sweet Sweet sound to you. <clears throat> there was something different about this song because it had nothing to do me. Nothing to do with me begging him to come through again for me when my whole life he has come through. 
There was no give me power, give me the open door, give me the opportunity, break down the walls, I want to go charge the wall. It was just, I exalt you, God. The only way I can exalt you is to take my eyes off of the things I carry and weigh me down and push through everything and get to you. He's above everything. He's over it all. And I had to sit in one of these chairs last night and say, God, I'm so sorry. I'm less than three weeks from Christmas. We got a lot of stuff to do. We got a winter retreat coming up. We got community night tonight. We got youth events in a couple of weeks. We got things that are going on. We got people coming and going and moving. And I got all these responsibilities and these things that I'm carrying and these things that are weights on my own heart and things that I need solved from you. And they dominate every second of every day. And as I sat with the Lord this week, all I could sense in my heart that gripped my heart was him to say, tell my people to come close. So we're going to get to community night. We'll get to the food here in just a second. But before we do that, in an act of obedience, just for a few moments, wants to ask ourselves, do I long for him that way? Is he above everything? Or have I keep going, look at here, look at this, look at this, look at this. I need you to do this, solve this for me. Take this weight for me. Fix this situation for me. Fix this. And I'm not saying you're wrong for that. You're not. But if he solves that issue tonight, does the longing of my heart go, oh, wow, I'm out of that situation? Or does it say, I love you, God. Because he's going to answer prayers. He's going to heal. He's going to do the things that he has promised for you in the way that serves his purpose and his will. But do I so want that resolution? Or do I want him? So we're going to let this lightly play. We're going to, and I want to encourage you, you want to find somewhere to stand in this room? Do it. You want to find somewhere to kneel in this room for a few minutes? Do it. If you just want to sit before God and say, I'm going to lay all these things down, that's what I had to do. I'm going to lay all these things down. I'm going to trust them, trust you with them. And I'm going to let the longing of my heart not being the resolution of a situation that I want solved now. That I need solved soon.
the longing of my heart is not going to be for him to give me a result. It's going to be for him regardless.